and welcome to Live from AUA 2022, Highlights in BPH. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we are able to continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. Before we get started, we'd like to go over a few items. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Amy Krambeck, for her tremendous efforts to plan this activity. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our distinguished faculty, Drs. Dean Elterman, Stephen Kaplan, and Lori Lerner for their time, talent, and expertise. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this enduring activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. The AUA is not accredited to offer credit to participants who are not MDs or DOs. However, the AUA will issue documentation of participation that states that the activity was certified for AMA PRA Category 1 credit. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit AUA University to view faculty, education council, and COI review workgroup disclosures. The AUA would like to thank Cook Medical and Olympus Corporation of the Americas for providing independent educational grants in support of this activity. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted and please follow individual insurer's rules. Finally, thank you for attending live from AUA 2022. I will now turn the program over to Dr. Krambeck. Thank you for joining us for live from AUA 2022. Today, we will be discussing highlights from the AUA annual meeting BPH presentations. My name is Dr. Amy Krambeck. I am professor of urology at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago, Illinois, and I am honored to moderate this informative discussion that we will have here today. I'm here today with three specialists. We have Dr. Dean Elterman, Dr. Elterman is an academic urologist at the University of Toronto, subspecializing in functional urology. His clinical and research interests include voiding dysfunction, particularly sacral neuromodulation, benign prostatic enlargement, and men's health. He is the medical director of the Prostate Cancer Rehabilitation Clinic at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. He lectures internationally on the topic of novel technologies for BPH and sacral neuromodulation and teaches course, courses at the AUA and SIU. We also have Dr. Stephen Kaplan, who is very well known. Dr. Kaplan is professor of urology at Iken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and is director of the men's health program of the Mount Sinai Health System. He is a serial entrepreneur and founder of the Metadate Solution Incorporation a publicly held corporation and one of the premier electronic data capture companies in the world. Uh, he also has interests in medical informatics as well as Inspirin and a digital interface analyzing and enhancing patient experience and healthcare professionals. Dr. Kaplan has been a member of many, many professional uh, organizations, over 30, and he's been awarded five NIH grants and has received over $13 million in research funding. He was awarded the John K. Latimer Award for Lifetime Achievement in Urology by the National Kidney Foundation. He is the founder of the Society of Benign Prostatic Diseases. 
And currently he is the chair of research of the American Urological Association and is one of the AUA BPH guidelines committee members. He's a busy guy. Um, finally, but last but not least, we have Lori Lerner. Dr. Lerner is an associate professor of urology at Boston University and chief of urology and deputy chief of surgery at the Veterans Affair Medical Center in Boston. She is also the current chair of the BPH Guidelines Committee. Dr. Lerner is an expert in male voiding dysfunction and prostate surgery. She's fellowship trained in HOLIP. She's been an academic urologist her entire career and she's been involved in teaching HOLIP to residents and urologists at home and abroad for over 20 years. That is a huge achievement. She is a strong advocate of education about surgical energies, particularly laser surgery, and has been involved in numerous initiatives and courses promoting education and training. It's going to be a great discussion. Um, I would like to start by just discussing the scope of the problem. Uh, BPH is highly pre prevalent and lower urinary tract symptoms increases with age, as most of you know such that about 50% of men over the age of 50 experience symptoms and approximately 80% of men by the age of 70 have significant symptoms. With improvements in life expectancy, BPH affects a large proportion of men globally and its prevalence is increasing. Because the condition is so prevalent, there are many treatment options available ranging from biofeedback, medications, office-based therapies, surgical interventions. Cost modeling indicates that early intervention is beneficial. However, exactly what intervention is somewhat difficult to determine since there's so many options available. Making a treatment decision really uh, depends on patient prefer uh, preference, uh, longevity of the treatment results, side effects, prostate size, cost, equipment available, as well as the surgeon specific factors such as their comfort level. We hope that today's discussion will shed light on current available treatment options and their respective indications and benefits. So after that introduction, I think we should start by focusing on the new AUA BPH guidelines, how to best diagnose and most effectively and safely treat uh, BPH. Dr. Kaplan, you were the course director for this instructional course at the 2022 AUA, as well as an author of the recently released BPH guidelines. Can you please explain how the new guidelines are structured with regards to the diagnostic evaluation of male LUTs and the notable differences in the current guidelines compared to the prior versions? Uh, sure, and uh, Amy, thank you very much for the kind invitation to be with uh, colleagues here who uh, we interacted a lot uh, over the last uh, four or five days. So I had to give a lecture about how diagnoses have changed since the original guidelines, and frankly, not much has changed. Uh, we still actually talk to patients and ask them what's bothering them, and that's probably the most important thing to help guide us. We have some objective measures, which um, uh, things like Euroflow, post-void residuals, uh, rectal exam, and uh, the, the big change that's occurred is really whether we measure prostate size, uh, because that helps herald for us uh, what type of treatment should actually be done. But the bottom line is, as it's always been, uh, you got to listen to the patient what their type of symptoms are, and that will help guide us to the best types of diagnosis and treatment. I, I would completely agree. And I think adding size is really important, especially given the vast options currently available. Yeah. Um, the updated guidelines recognize the role of several new office-based treatments for BPH. Um, in your opinion, what is the simplified approach 
for the urologist in determining which one of the many office-based treatments is right for their patient? Well, the good news is, in a sense, the challenge, because now we have a panoply of things to offer. It's really a question of what the predominant type of symptoms the patient has, uh, what other concomitant conditions they may have in trying to, to fit. And a lot of it has to do, frankly, with prostate size. That's a biggie. And as, as you mentioned before, and I'm sure uh, both Laurie and Dean will talk about this as well, that if prostate's really too big for what we think is a good result with a minimally invasive uh, procedure, then we don't really use them. Um, and you can argue and debate whether it should be uh, 20 grams or 30 grams. Most of the guidelines will say 30 to 80 grams. So if we're going to think about that in a patient, in other words, they're a patient who either A, doesn't want to take medication, B, has taken medication, hasn't worked, can't tolerate it, and is willing to have a procedure, but they don't want to have surgery, then we think about the three that at least the United States are FDA approved. And then prostate size and configuration are important. I mean, from my perspective, uh, I think there are certain times I will do one versus the other, and I'll let my colleagues here discuss uh, which and when and what they're going to use. But prostate size and the presence of a middle lobe can help determine which of the types of therapies you have. And, and I'll have a full discussion with our patients and try to figure out what's important to them. In other words, for some patients, they like a stepwise approach. They don't want the one and done. And for some patients, it's a one and done. Give me the procedure that you think is less likely to be a retreatment. And that will begin to have the discussion about which direction we go in. But it's very open, very engaged, and we try to empower patients that they have a good idea of what their choices are going to be. Uh, that is a great way to think about it. And, um, you know, with the newer MIST therapies available, you know, one of the, the benefits is preservation of ejaculation. And, you know, there's so many different options. How should the practitioner think about the trade-off? Um, with maximal improvement, avoiding symptoms while preserving sexual function. What is the approach that, that we should be taking for this? Well, it's interesting. I, we've made it about ejaculation, but one would argue, and I'm sure Lori and Dean will, is that even with some surgical approaches, many surgical approaches, you can preserve ejaculation as well. So many of the advantages may not, just be, may not be with regards to ejaculation. From my perspective, the major differences are a, a missed therapy is a, it's a quick procedure, and in my world, it can be done in the office. So you take essentially a five-minute procedure they're done in the office uh, with either some sedation or whatever local anesthetic folks like to use, and they go. And that's a major advantage for patients. They they can go you know to work relatively quickly, and they don't have as much downtime as they may have with surgery. So that's a big guide of it. My perspective of ejaculation, many of them come in with that notion that, well, if I do this, I'm going to be able to ejaculate. If I, if I do surgery, I won't. But that may actually be true. So for them, it's really a question of what they're willing to tolerate at the beginning and the outset. And yes, we have a discussion about ejaculation. It's important. But the differences between the therapies may not be as big as we think. Amy, can I just add one thing on this topic? Two takeaways for me from this AUA is number one, to recognize there's actually a baseline prevalence of men who have ejaculatory dysfunction just out there in the community, regardless of whether they're on an alpha blocker or not. There's many men who just with age have ejaculatory dysfunction. So you should ask them about that at baseline. And number two, you shouldn't necessarily have this um, assumption that as men age, they care less about their sexual function, ejaculatory function. So there may be many younger men who frankly wouldn't care if they lost it, but there may also be some men in their 70s and 80s who will care very much if they lost it. 
Uh, so those are two takeaways, that, at least that I had from this, this meeting. I think another point is that men often confuse sexual function and what that actually is. For some men, it's an erection. For some men, it's their libido. In other words, they don't have desire, and then they think, well, give me a Viagra and my desire will get better. It doesn't work that way. Ejaculation is a third component. So really trying to understand what their concerns are, what it's important to that particular patient is important, I think, in terms of how to guide which type of therapy we want to use. I yeah, guess, I, oh, oh, go ahead, Amy. Oh, I, I was just going to add to that. You know, I think for some of these as well, a lot of men just simply don't understand what ejaculation means. So trying to help them understand it or characterize it. And sometimes that can even be done by giving them a trial of medication that will actually do that. Like we won't necessarily leave them on it for forever, but maybe it gives them a better idea. So they, I think they hear loss of ejaculation. And just like Steve was saying, in their mind, that may be loss of erections, that may be loss of libido. They don't always really, or that they're not going to be able to attain an orgasm. So I think it is important for us to spend some time saying, no, you're still going to be able to climax and try to really make sure that they understand exactly what we're talking about. Because there is so much direct-to-consumer marketing that it raises up in their brain, but they don't always actually know what it is that that means. Or they interpret it wrong. I completely agree. This, this, the doing whole up has opened my eyes to the whole realm of, of the varying degrees of sexual function and what's important and whom. And, um, we could talk at two hours on this, but, um, as you, as all of you were talking, you brought up medication, uh, Dr. Kaplan, is there anything new in the, in the guidelines with regards to medic medical therapy or medications that we should be aware of? Well, since the, uh, the, guidelines, the last guidelines that we did on medication, there've been a lot of uh, combination therapies as well as the advent of the use of bladder agents, either in combinations or as monotherapy. So there really hasn't been a major flip in, uh, in alpha blockers or five ARIs. The use of Tadalafil, uh, we, we addressed whether uh, as a monotherapy or as a combination therapy, uh, the use of medications like anticholinergics for patients with predominantly storage symptoms, again, these are monotherapy or combination therapy. And also we began to talk about the beta-3 agonists, which evolved uh, over the last uh, seven or eight years. So there are a lot of different types of medications. I think one area that uh, we're gonna have to look at is how we define failure with those therapies. Uh, not much uh, as well as missed therapies and surgical therapies. It will be something we talk about a little bit later, but that's going to be important, particularly with medical therapy, because what I may define as a, uh, as a failure, you may not, uh, and more importantly, the patient may not. So we have to kind of put that together as well. Excellent point. Um, you, you touched on that the uh, AUA guidelines is a very extensive document. And you know most people are not going to be able to commit it to memory. How how do you suggest someone utilize that in their daily practice? Again, pragmatic. So you're you're not going to go through every part of it. And frankly, a lot of things may not be relevant to a particular person's practice. They may only do one type of missed therapy or one type of surgical therapy. So the indications, if there's somebody who does primarily bipolar vaporization what all the comments about thulium laser may not be that relevant to them. I think the most important part is diagnosis. And at the end of the day, regardless of which therapy, the diagnosis should be made the same way. 
and I think the concept of using a some type of measurement of prostate size, if you're thinking about doing something, are the major differences between what we have today and what we had uh, years ago. And, and I like to add that I think that people focus on the statements. There is so much knowledge to be gained in the supporting text. So I think what people don't necessarily look at that, they're looking for these little bullet points. And if they're not getting that from that particular statement or whatever statement it is that they're looking at or subject, really they should go in and look at the supporting text because every person who took on that guideline had the opportunity to expand and it, and it could pull in literature beyond the randomized controlled trials or whatever it was that we required or found that we needed for generating the guideline statement itself. But we could pull in all sorts of other things to talk about the technology in the supporting text. And I think people just don't read it. I mean, it's an extensive document. So I would, I encourage people to look because that's where the meat of where we got some of that information. But we also build on that too and make dive and become a little bit more granular. Um, and also the algorithms. I do think the algorithms are helpful. Um, and that's another quick little bullet, uh, at least for sure in the management and workup algorithm and medical management, I find that one, you know, to be a nice little nutshell to have on your phone as a, you know, as a quick snapshot. Excellent point. A lot of great pearls within the text if you have time to read it or are looking for something specific. Um, just to change gears a little bit, uh, the guidelines endorse laser enucleation as a size independent treatment option for BPH. It provides uh, limited information on newer forms of prostate enucleation called uh, bipolar enucleation. Dr. Elterman, Dr. Li, Li Ping Ji highlighted his surgical approach using bipolar enucleation in the semi live session. Uh, based on the presentation, what do you see are potential advantages to this technique? So I think we all accept that enucleation is often seen as an energy source independent uh, uh, technique. Um, and it can be done with a variety of lasers, tools, and bipolar uh, electrocautery or electrovaporization. Uh, Dr. Xi presented a very nice uh, video with some of his data looking at something that I think he's developed in China, which is called the Daiyu scalpel, D-A-Y-U. And it's based upon a, uh, a harvest sheath, a harvest farming implement from about 500 years ago in China. And essentially it has three modes of action. It, it's shaped almost like a sickle and it has the ability both to get into the plane for nucleation and push tissue away. It has a bit of a point on the end where you can apply focused electro vaporization or electrocautery for a hemostasis, but also has a sharper side where you can actually uh, resect or electrovaporized tissue. So it almost has a three-in-one approach. And it really demonstrated, I think, the versatility not only of a nucleation, but the versatility of this particular instrument where he can very quickly uh, use the uh, somewhat sharp edge to get into the tissue, use his scope uh, and the front edge to push away the tissue, and then, of course, provide cautery. And if he wishes, uh, at the end, to either resect uh, or um, morselate. But of course, it just showed the uh, versatility of what he was doing. And much like all enucleation, regardless of uh, energy source, it, it looked very nice and a, a great end product. So do you adhere to the statement enucleation is enucleation is enucleation? Uh, I, well, I, I, I might uh, ask you <laughs> and, and Lori, 
uh, what you think of whether enucleation is enucleation, but from where I sit, looking at all the various uh, excellent videos presented at the AUA 2022, uh, it does seem that there are a lot of commonalities between enucleation, of course. Uh, it seems like it's a, an expert technical skill. And then I think you get a little bit into the weeds in terms of the nuances between perhaps the different approaches, whether it's two-lobe, three-lobe, on-block, early release, uh, and of course, the energy source. I think um, what's really vital is that people understand their energy source. So I, I think this this came up that uh, various we know that we can do endoscopic enucleation with other energy sources or other approaches. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And at this moment, we don't have the right answer as to whether there are preferred energy sources. I guess what I would say what what is so important is. I don't think we do a great job. Obviously, this is my passion. Um, I don't think we do a great job in residency programs of really training people on the different energy sources and tissue interactions and what uh, what the harm they could provide, quite frankly. And so I think that there's a belief that if you've gotten used to one, at least in the laser world, a laser is a laser is a laser. And, in, and we know that in actual fact, that's not true. So I guess I would say that while we may not have identified if all of them should be used and, and that may be fine, but mostly um, ensuring that whatever energy source you use, that you understand what that tissue interaction is going to be. So you, you don't heat up the bladder too much. You don't blow apart the bladder neck. You don't go deeper into the capsule than what you intended, you know, just really understanding how it interacts. And, and, and if you do, and you take the time to learn about that, then the most important thing is just doing it safely. It seems like in the realm of endourology, we often try things and then a year or two later, we step back and see what are the potential complications to it. And it may be that way in oncology and other areas as well. But I do, since I'm an endourologist, I see that. But um, it, it does seem like the bipolar technique does have some significant advantages to it. Uh, Dean, do you see any potential negatives to it? You know, I think, well, his particular technique seems to be originating in China. So obviously it's this a whole concept of dissemination of technology. Uh, some technologies are really regional. Uh, there's a lot of certain types of surgeries performed in Europe that aren't really done a lot here in North America and vice versa. So I think that may be part of it. Um, and again, it's just sort of the learnings. But one of the advantages, I think, to this particular dye scalpel technique and bipolar is that it does seem to transfer over a little bit more easily to people who are very familiar with using that type of resective technology. I've, um, I've done button enucleation when I've done my surgical work in Malawi because I'm not able to bring a laser or any of that with me. So the only technology I actually have available to me is a button or a loop. Um, and I guess I would say it's a little bit harder to see the capsule, you know, so I think it's just understanding that, and you don't want to go too much deeper because you just don't, you know, because you definitely don't want to cause bleeding. I'm not in a place where there's three-way irrigation. So I think that's the one difference I would say. Um, I tried it with a loop because I had loops there too, but I found for me, at least it was easier with a button, but I didn't have that same clear look of the capsule that I'm so used to with Holmium, but I could get a, a nice big defect. Fantastic. Well, I, th I think that parlays us into our next question, which is, um, Dr. Lerner, you were 
part of the new hands-on skills uh, training course that we, we had at the AUA this year. And it featured multiple different uh, therapies for ablation or removal of the adenoma. Uh, and based on your participation in this training, um, should we be incorporating all of these different therapies uh, into our practice as a general urologist? Where should they be focusing their efforts? Well, I think... What I see from year to year is that there still seems to be either some deficit, you know, something that we're just not quite meeting in what we have, that there continue to be new technologies that come down the pike and, and people adopt them. So I, it's, I do think that we pick the ones that we like. I guess I would say, should we? Well, I think patients expect that every practice that they go to is going to have something that is cutting edge. I, I think it would be hard to not expect that. Um, I think they there is this sort of expectation that there's the tried and true, but that your practice is also on the cutting edge and you're doing new things, modern things, novel things. And I think patients want that and look for that. And if you're not presenting that forward, then you run that risk of those patients going elsewhere to seek out that therapy. Now, we also have to caution ourselves that we shouldn't be doing them just because that's what the patient is asking for. So I do think there's fiscal responsibility. And I think people need to kind of like look at their practice and then look at their community. Like here in Boston, we have five, six different people that do enucleation. So if you've got one large or extra large, super large prostate that comes into your practice every two to three months, do you really need to learn and adopt how to treat these really big glands? Um, that, in that community, that doesn't make sense. And so you may focus your practice on that other group that you see mostly, and that is your general population. So I think it's important for people to look at what's in their community, what's coming into their practice. But I, I do think that there should be some sort of tried and true and something modern that is being offered, because I do think that's what people are looking for. So one of the challenges that occurs uh, is we always get to get, we get is what's the best? And the best is what you do and do it well. That's the best. And I think that often we get caught up in these types of interesting discussions. So from my perspective, even though Holmium uh, nucleation is not done as much around the country. If I needed one, I could come to either you, Laurie, or, or Amy, and I'd be—I know I'd get a great result because you're committed to the technology, you're excellent at it. But that's really—are you the rule or the exception? And that occurs, frankly, with all these technologies. And I'm a big believer that do what you do, do it well, make the right diagnosis, and you'll have a very satisfied patient. The, 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 the sheer reality is that the TURP, a monopolar TURP, is still the most common procedure done around the world. So, you know, it's not a terrible procedure. We do have a lot of options here, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, it's just we should really focus on getting back to right diagnosis and then doing a, a, a therapy. If they were missed, get good at one of them. And a surgical therapy, get good at one of them. And I think you're good to go. And I think if the patient has a good result, that's really at the end of the day what we want. So, Dr. Elterman, you know, Dr. Kaplan is, I think, saying do something really well and maybe have one base surgical procedure that you're doing well and potentially incorporate in a missed therapy. Are, you do quite a bit of various different treatments. What are your thoughts on that? 
I think for those of us who are very passionate about new technology and BPH is kind of fun and it benefits patients, frankly, and residents and students to be able to try out these different technologies, evaluate, assess them. I would agree with Steve that if you are in a general practice, having a few things that you're really good at, tools, uh, are what you should have. So if you are great at doing a bipolar TERP and that's how you approach your bigger glands, that's excellent. And if you would like to have a mist, there are various mists to choose from. Uh, as you know, enucleation is in a set of hands that are expert, uh, we now have other technologies coming out like aquablation, which really offers the ability to treat a wide range of prostates in terms of size and shape, maybe with less uh, training or skill set. So as these new technologies come around, they can often uh, permeate through the community perhaps a little bit easier uh, compared to other technologies. Uh, but I do think sort of it's incumbent upon us to offer our patients at least a few options and not just say, you know, you have to have this and, and no other choices. Well, there's also a difference between being at a, an academic and a training center and then a large practice uh, some, sometimes outside of that. So it, I think it's a different environment, an environment like urine dean or actually the four of us are in. The expectation is that we would be able to be cutting edge as the case may be. But in the real world, which is the rest of the world, and which is most of the world, um, they don't have that ability to offer three or four different things or five different things. And I think the patient expectation is different. Certainly coming to one of us, I think the expectation would be to be more cutting edge for sure. I completely agree. So I, I just want to circle back one more time. So Dr. Lerner, you had uh, briefly touched on cost. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, treatments require very specialized equipment and it's going to be highly costly. Furthermore, the reimbursement is constantly changing. Um, any words of advice for the general urologist who's trying to weigh cost and quality? Um, any suggestions? Well, I mean, I do, I mean, I work at a VA hospital, right? So I, everything that we do is paid for by the taxpayer. Um, we have a very high accountability because we're accountable to our patients, but we're also in theory accountable to everybody, right? The entire population. So I believe very strongly in fiscal responsibility. Um, and we are doing, we do a lot of things in medicine that are expensive and that is an expectation and, and where all of us practice is that that is going to be available, but it drives healthcare costs up and that overall hurts America, right? It, it hurts society period. So I, I'm not necessarily a big proponent of doing really expensive things for the sake of doing expensive things. Um, I think I will go back if I'm talking about in the non-academic setting right now in the community, which is what Steve was talking about, is what is in your community? Is there a deficit in your community? Is there something that your hospital can provide that the hospital down the street isn't providing? Now, I don't think that this should be that, I mean, to some degree, we're all competing with those hospitals, but at the same token, I think that we should, as urologists, be collegial and sharing and exactly what we were just talking about. We might offer something here, but we should also not be afraid to refer to our colleagues for something that they might offer, you know, and that this is a way to keep costs overall controlled and down. As far as whether or not there's a technology, I mean, Aquablation is a one trick pony, right? So, you know, that's for maybe that doesn't make sense for everybody. It would if you're in a high volume place where the difference between doing two cases a day and four cases a day is, is big. That's that's huge. You know, you could get patients through faster. That may make sense. Um, if you don't have a stone platform, 
it may make sense then to say to your hospital, okay, I'm going to look at Moses or Holmium or TFL, you know, something that can do multiple different things. Um, I think it, I just don't think it should be a knee jerk reaction that I need to have this. I think that people should critically evaluate what is missing and use that as their basis to determine what they should move forward with um, in terms of convincing their practice or their hospital. One other factor, you know, we're focusing, Amy, on the cost of a laser fiber or a laser machine or an aquablation, but it's also human capital, which is going to be the biggest cost addition to the American healthcare system over the next three or four years, maybe a 15% increase. So being able to do things and th the throughput is faster is also important. So for example, if you had three patients with 150 gram glands, you did three holeups, and, and again, maybe in your hands, it can be pretty quick, but for most people, probably take a couple of hours each one, I, I would imagine, if not longer. Uh, you, can you can put three aquaplations much faster, so the nursing time, the OR time, the hospital time, the anesthesia time is less, too. And again, that's bigger formulas than you know, what we're used to talking about. My point is, is that when we talk about cost, it's not just the cost of the equipment. It's the ancillary stuff as well, as you put that together. And, and it's all going up, but uh, we have to think about those perspectives as well. Well, and access, which is exactly what you, you know, is what you were saying and what Amy has said, you know, like if you were in a place where there aren't a lot of urologists in your community and being able to get patients done without having really long waiting lists, I mean, Dean can probably respond to some of that, then some of these technologies do make a lot of sense. I just would caution us that just because we can do a particular size, shape, morphology with a with a technology doesn't always mean that we should and we can't fit everybody into one thing. And I, I think that's what all of us here would say. Um, and that goes back to where you started with this whole conversation, which is, should you offer more than one technology? Yeah, I, I don't know that you need 17 technologies. But in this day and age, you, you know, ideally, yes, we would we think that it would be nice for you to have something that fits that patient instead of making the patient fit the technology. Find the technology that fits the patient. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great discussion. Um, talking about the different technologies, um, Dr. Elterman, you were part of the uh, surgical BPH course as well. Anything stand out from your perspective with regards to potential complications of the various therapies that you know we should be aware of or concerned about? Anything unique that you would like to highlight? Well, I think uh, no technology is without complication and anyone who tells you otherwise isn't really being truthful. So, you know, I think that each of these technologies has their own unique attributes and thus uh, some unique aspects in terms of possible complications. Uh, you know, this, this really great hands-on ablative resective course really demonstrated not only, you know, how to set up these uh, devices with real models, but also just an opportunity to discuss with participants what to expect when they're doing uh, surgery and the complications. So we had at this uh, course, we had uh, aquablation, resume, uh, water vapor ablation, uh, and enucleation, if I remember correctly. So, you know, the complications for each of these are well known. Um, you know, for me, a couple tips and tricks that I, I glean from rotating around. So for resume, for example, I think one big tip for, for individuals is to remember not to over-treat. It seems like it's very easy just to give more steam. It's free. Why not give another uh, injection of nine seconds of vapor or two or three or four? But pretty soon it adds up and it's not necessary. And in fact, we've shown in, in some recent research that uh, less is more. In fact, less steam, single injection or two injections, results in just as good as of an outcome. And in fact, there's absolutely no relationship 
between how much the prostate shrinks and how much steam was injected. So that would be a takeaway from there because you can get complications in terms of necrosis of tissue. With the aquablation, complications can be everything from uh, just, I think, getting very familiar with uh, ultrasound. It's not really a complication, but it's more of skill that's necessary. A lot of people, I think, uh, don't appreciate uh, the level of uh, education we all get with transrectal ultrasound and imaging. And this is an imaging-based technology. So just being able to really see the prostate, map it out not only with the software and the screen, but in your mind three-dimensionally uh, is a key attribute. And then, of course, with the nucleation, I mean, I think, uh, Amy and Lori, you can talk great uh, at great length about this, but those hands-on courses really allow you to sort of understand how to get into the plane and stay in the plane because of course you have the uh, potential complications of losing your space within the prostate as you're enucleating. Well, that, that really brings us to the next question, which is how do we learn these techniques better? Um, we did have um, a couple of new models in the ablative course. Uh, they're definitely a start in the right direction. Um, do you think that simulation is really going to be able to teach people a nucleation um, I, I think the simulation for the resume in the aquablation is really lifelike, very good. Um, but simulation for a nucle nucleation, I don't know if we're there yet. What are your thoughts? Well, I think one of the challenges with a nucleation is that unless you're learning it as a resident or fellow, you're going to have to learn it mid-career. And then you sort of have this issue of, well, where do you go to learn? How do you learn? And how do I ethically practice on my patients? as if, you know, when a resident, they weren't your patients, but still you have to practice on a patient. So these models allow surgeons to at least get the basic steps down, the ability to understand how their hands move, how to interact with the tissue. And of course, these models have gotten better compared to the ones that were around five and 10 years ago. So I think we're definitely going in the right direction. Uh, I think nothing uh, replaces real human uh, pra practice and training on a, on a patient. But these, uh, these models that we had at the ablative course were very helpful, I think. I think um, <clears throat> simulation is a, a, a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I, I think the benefit of simulation is just like Dean was saying, it's just getting used to the equipment and how to move your hands. You know, there's a haptic feel to all these things that you can't quite get with um, in, in the simulators, no matter what you try to do. Uh, what I worried about a little bit with the nucleation models is if you spent a lot of time on that, you have this impression of the tissue interaction and then you actually go into the patient and it's it, that tissue interaction is different. And so whether, whether your dwell time is longer or shorter, you know, spending too much time in a simulator could actually give you this false sense of how things are supposed to go. And you actually could either not be very efficient or you could actually dwell too much and cause a little bit more injury. So I think in my opinion, just my opinion, that the best thing about the simulators, especially for like resume and your left, is just knowing where the buttons are, like get used to the handpiece, how you need to turn the handpiece, you know, find the gray button when you want to release it, retract it, prime it, just get comfortable with that. So you're not spending all this time, you know, getting yourself right set up in the right position, like a Eurolift is classic and then turn around and have to look at it and you lose exactly where you are again. So I think that is really important. And I think with the nucleation, just feeling the scope and how to make the moves, just like Dean was saying and the steps, but trying to get through to people that the, the interaction, the tissue interaction is not what you should be focusing on. It's the steps and the motions and the equipment. 
So that leads to the opportunity or the changes of learning techniques that are easier. Because if you have to do a lot of simulation to learn something, then the one that needs the least simulation and or the least uh, uh, experience and technique uh, maybe wind up being more popular. So for example, uh, Dean alluded to before aquablation, it's a very, 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 very easy technique to learn. Uh, in fact, residents are with me and after two or three, they're able to do virtually everything except programming. Um, so, and I can't say that for any other procedure that I do, certainly not some of the minimally invasive, uh, enucleation, enucleation. I've done almost 4,000 TURs and I'm still learning how to do them uh, because it's just a long learning curve. So if you begin to develop, and you know this is going to happen because of the nature of technology, that when you start learning techniques that are easier to pick up, they may, uh, they may have favor because of the learning curves being less. On the other side, uh, to do some of these procedures, you have to have good basic skills, uh, like uh, whether it's uh, electrosurgical skills or laser skills. And if we wind up being totally, if you will, robotic, uh, then we're going to lose some of those other skills that are important. So it's going to be a balance. And that would be my concern moving forward, is that can we have a future generation of urologists who will be adept enough that if that particular quick procedure doesn't work, then they can revert to some of their skills that uh, they learned in their residency and early career that may be able to uh, augment that. Well, and to go to, to what you said initially, Steve, the other thing is, is I don't want us to lose sight with the, and again, this is talked about direct-to-consumer marketing, direct-to-physician marketing of what is easier to learn, therefore means that it's the right thing. So I do think that we've seen this play out in the past, right, with ablative technologies where then the reoperator, the retreatment rate, you know, goes up. So, which you were talking about retreatment at the beginning. So somewhere in there in the it is is really understanding what that technology does and, and applying it appropriately and we don't yet know what the sweet spot is for some of these technologies you know and but in the places where we if we get to that point where we identify absolutely it makes sense if there's access to that technology it's faster it's easier to learn by all means we need to do it i just don't want us to forget that it's still not that everything can be applied to one thing and we need to accept that it could be a staged approach. You know, Steve mentioned this before, we may accept that there are certain things that may need to be done in five years and that may be okay. Uh, we don't yet know the answer to that. It's it's interesting as I'm listening to um, you all talk, I'm, I, you know, I wear my other hat as a stone surgeon and I forgot if we were talking about BPH or shockwave lithotripsy. <laughs> Because <laughs> we've done it in different fields as well, you know, we can we can very very well simplify it so that everyone can easily do it, but we may have to retreat. So it's a very common discussion. Um, talking about simplifying, uh, Dr. Elterman, you had a chance to look at Dr. Chugte's uh, semi-live BPH procedure, the ITIND. Uh, what do you where do you see that? technology in the general urologist practice and what are the take-homes from that presentation? Right. So um, I had the great opportunity to see uh, Bilal Chugtai from Cornell present his uh, uh, plenary talk on the new ITIND uh, temporary implantable nitinol device, T-I-N-D, that's what it stands for. And this is now the third Mr. Minimally Invasive option now on the market along with Resume and Eurolift. And I think just a couple of things. So this is a unique implant in that it's uh, placed uh, into the prosthetic urethra across the bladder neck. Uh, it expands and it's left in situ just for five to seven days. 
during that time, during the expansion, it causes ischemia and ischemic necrosis resulting in these deep grooves at the three struts placed at five, seven, and 12 o'clock. And uniquely after uh, five to seven days, it's entirely removed and the, the procedure is done and you've essentially opened up the bladder outlet uh, with this device. Um, uh, now, Dr. Chagtai presented a video essentially showing uh, the newer modified technique, which allows us to be performed in an office with a flexible cystoscope. Uh, and so the insertion really takes under five minutes, uh, performed with a flexible scope. You can then introduce the device uh, through an access sheath. You place it under direct vision into the uh, prostate where it's seated with an anchoring leaflet. And then a, um, a tether is left in place uh, on the dorsum of the penis. And five days later, you backload uh, the string, the tether through an open-ended catheter, you advance it down to the hub and the device collapses inside. So that was what uh, Dr. Chugdai uh, presented at the plenary. You know, where this fits in? Well, I mean, I think it's very interesting. There's a couple differentiators or advantages with this. Number one, uh, it essentially doesn't require a catheter. The catheterization rates of around five, less than 5%. Uh, it results in no um, uh, ejaculatory erectile dysfunction reported in the literature. Uh, and number two, it may be interesting in that it can treat some bladder neck uh, pathology. You know, with a Urolift and a Resume, you have to start a centimeter back or two centimeters back uh, because you don't want clips or steam going through the bladder neck. But here you're purposely incising the bladder neck with the struts. And so for perhaps some men who have a different pathology, bladder outlet obstruction from a tight bladder neck, instead of uh, con contemplating a TYP, you might consider an ITIN. So it, it differentiates a little bit. Uh, in terms of the patient population. But again, uh, I think it's going to be generally on par 30 to 80 gram prostates compared to Eurolift or, or Resume as an option. I'll be very curious to see what the retrievement rate with that is going to be. Um, then they may not go home with a catheter, but they're going with the, the string coming out of their penis. So. But, but, but to your point, and I think we alluded to this very briefly, Durability does not have to be the be-all and end-all for every BPH surgical treatment. I think if we flip things on their head, as Amy said, this reminds her of the stone world. Well, this reminds me of the OAB world. And, you know, we do Botox repeated every six months, and it makes people very happy. And that doesn't, you know, one Botox injection doesn't have to last for 10 years. So the idea of as devices get less and less invasive with less morbidity, maybe their ability to be repeated less uh, more frequently may not be a trade-off that men um, will will disagree with that's the science of it and then there's the economics of it and uh, the, the the challenge is what will drive it's a, a big drive of what uh, does this is reimbursement and it's a you know almost almost a taboo topic sometimes but the reality is and I'll, I'll give you a, an example from historically and uh, how things have changed or not changed uh, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, microwave was a very common technology that was used. And people sounded just like you, Dean, in terms of the enthusiasm. And, and I, was, I was one of those people who was enthusiastic. And then it got approved and Medicare in New York was paying over $5,000 reimbursement, which was like crazy. It was insanity. So guess what happened? Everybody started doing microwaves. Um, and then over the course of time, insurance and Medicare said, hey, what's going on? There's a lot of retreatments. And then the reimbursement went down to such a level uh, that it became less cost effective and it stopped being done. The data didn't change. They didn't change at all. Nothing. The science didn't change. The only thing that changed was the reimbursement. 
and the money factor. So it would be naive to think that that's not part of it. I understand from the patient perspective, uh, and I agree. Uh, sometimes patients would rather have something done every three or five years. The, the question will be is who's going to pay for it? Because the cost of these things, as Laurie and Amy talked about before, is not inconsequential. And companies are not going to want to reduce the, their cost. So somewhere, something gives. Well, and, and I think that was a focus of one of the panels at the SOBPD uh, meeting that you participated in. Would you say microwave was uh, one of the bigger lessons in the last 20 years or maybe the interplay between reimbursement, uh, driving technology, and then uh, perception? Well, it was a lesson. I don't know if it's been well learned, though, because we seem to be repeating the same things today. Um, so... You know, it would be naive for us to not recognize that a lot of things are driven by the economics on the cost side as well as the reimbursement side. And we're we're back in the microwave era. <laughs> we just are. Um, it's a question of, of magnitude and things like that. So we're going to sometimes the situations will be driven more by the uh, science of economics and reimbursement of the science of the technology because the technology is is, is what it is. Uh, now, there may be technologies that evolve over time that are, let's say, better than the current missed therapies, and the durability may be a little bit better. So the cost reimbursement may wind up being better. But it's not ad infinitum. It just doesn't work that way. Because if people are doing a lot of something, people are going to ask, why are you doing a lot of something? So you're going to have to show that there's a reason why you're doing a lot of something and that it's cost effective. And it's not just whether a patient will come in every three years to do it. Someone's going to have to pay for it. And that's a big factor. And, we, well, I, I don't know if it's a lesson learned. It's a lesson that happened. I'm not sure we've learned too much. And um, I don't actually think patients want to have things done again. I mean, my Botox patients may tolerate it, but I think if we told them that we had something that they could have, you know, not come in and have their flexible system, they would choose that. So I think um, we, this is where we have to uh, sort of police ourselves um, because, you know, three of those can go great. And then the next one, they've got urosepsis and not so great. Right. So I think we do have to be critically evaluating our, you know, our outcomes, but what's also happening out there as well. You know, I, I had this conversation, you know, people are, are still doing tuna people there are people who are still doing microwave and i think just like we're talking about they they're in their hands are getting good outcomes but i think we do have to constantly say should should we be doing that like you know should it should we be spending 45 minutes doing a procedure that may look pretty much the same with something that takes five minutes just because there is risk the longer we do things so i i, I don't think we have the answer to all of that yet um, but some of these new things that are coming down the pike actually will give us some answers about that, actually. I, I think I think that the stents, the Optilum, the, these things that if they're able to, to give patients enough of a symptom control and there isn't a lot of risk associated with it, it, it may change that paradigm a lot. Like, I mean, we, Amy, you and I can get flow rates of 40 on patients, but I don't think a patient comes in and says, I need a flow rate of 40. I mean, I think if their flow rate was eight and they got to 15 or 16, they'd be pretty happy. So, um, but I don't think that they want to have every two years 
regress back to eight and then go back to 14 and regress back to eight and do this back and forth. So I think, you know, we see what some of these new technologies are going to give us. That was a great discussion. Um, so maybe would you say, Lori, that your, your perspective would be to maybe wait and see what the data shows after a few years before adopting these technologies? I think it's impossible. I mean, and no one's going to do that, right? You know, like we, I mean, PAE is a perfect example. People didn't care about the data, you know, they started doing it because they believed in it. I mean, BPH is one of these things that, you know, I think in cancer, people wait for more information, but BPH, nobody seems to care, you know, like it seems like, you know, they're ready to inject anything and everything into it. Um, so do I think we should wait? I mean, we, it's hard to, these trials take a long time to run. Uh, it's hard to randomize people. I mean, we all have struggled with that. Recruitment is tough. I do think, though, that we need to understand who are the right patients for some of these technologies. And we're only going to get that by starting to do this. And these highly selected patients in these trials are probably not actually going to give us those answers, right? So I think if we're responsible and and industry is committed to what we're doing and, and we're committed to the patient and their course when we're doing some of these things we're very transparent that look this is new you know i don't know but i do know the space i know the perineum i know the prostate i know the urethra i, I understand um in theory what this is supposed to, to do and be ready to pivot I, I think that's what we we really owe our patients you know we need to be advocating for them not advocating for the technology right um and through that we're going to be able, hopefully, to get more granular and be able to say, you know, maybe we're going to have a big chart. If you have a middle lobe this size, you're tall, you're wide, you know, like at the sense, I think there's a 200 gram prostate can come in all sorts of different shapes, right? Like we, we talk about size all the time, but I don't think size is the answer all the time. I mean, very wide prostates are, are different than very tall prostates that aren't as wide. Uh, a bilobar versus a trilobar. So I think we're going to have to, we're going to start to get into the weeds. We didn't have to do that before because we just didn't have as many technologies. N now we're going to have like a hundred, you know, so we're going to have to say this prostate is best for these things. So you, you also talked at the, the meeting about how to, how the new urologist should counsel the patient when they're early in their learning curve. Any words of advice on um, maybe the urologist that is trying a new technology and needs to tell their patient that uh, I've done a number of these, which may be one. Uh, what, what is a good way yeah. to do that? Yeah. I mean, I think if I were counseling somebody who's just starting whole up versus me after 20 years now deciding to pick up resume, I think that's a very different sort of counseling. There's a different level of confidence that I have in just that space, right? Um, I, I think the most important thing is transparency and being committed to patients, right? And I also think that you should not try to convince somebody who feels unsettled about it to do what you want because they're the right patient for what it is you need. So I do think it's a mix between being honest, but but also telling them that they're going to be well supported and you're going to follow their course and actually follow their course. Like you need to, you're going to have to spend more time contacting patients and being in touch with them um, and being available when you're learning something new, you know, and, and if it's not going well, you need to be there for them. You know, you need to understand. 
Uh, I, I did a new technology recently and my first couple didn't go well at all. You know, the later ones did, but they believed in me and had faith because I was in that, I was doing this journey with them and I exhibited as much agita, if you will, when they weren't doing as well. Um, and then I think they feel then that you're advocating for them and you really do want what's best for them. And if they develop that kind of trust and you don't have had to have seen them for 20 years as a patient to establish that it's that first visit. You can do that in that first visit um, by showing humility in addition to the confidence. So I just think the biggest thing is really commitment and transparency and, and selecting the right patient. I mean, my God, you, you, I mean, that that is probably above all everything is making sure that you are selecting something for success, especially when you're first learning it. Right. Um, but I think also, Lori, it's every each of us have our first patient I mean, just absolutely. the nature of the beast. Uh, it's just a question of the confidence that you have as well as the patient has. So can you really learn something from a computer video as opposed to going and watching some some people? For example, you came over and watched us do aquablation. It may not have made you better or worse, but I think it gave you the more confidence that when you did your first one, you had seen it. And I think that's important, too, that there's one thing to to read about it. There's one thing to virtually simulate it. But when you see an action uh, you look over someone's shoulder who has done more of them, that gives you more confidence and that can be transmitted to the patient as well. Uh, because each of us are a patient. And if it's not, you know, there's someone's father or grandfather is having, or son or whatever is having that BP-8 procedure. And you would want for them the same thing that you would want for any other patient. I think we should keep that in mind as well. And that's really that commitment, right? Like sure. when I went and watched Steve, I, I was not looking to industry to answer these clinical questions for me. Um, and I, I think that can get lost sometimes. I was able to, to go to Steve who has, he, he's not there to sell the technology. He's there to help me get through this procedure when I start to adopt it safely. Cause he doesn't want me to call him two weeks later and say, okay, I just did mine. And they were a complete disaster, right? Like he's as committed to me having success as well. And so there is, I, I definitely think that when you take up a new technology, you you need to be willing to put in that time and commitment to do exactly that. Like took a day out of my schedule, went down, Steve was able to help me get in there and it made a huge difference, huge difference. It was, you know, for me to be able to ask questions when something looked a little, what are you seeing there? Um, and having that availability to somebody who can, can be there as a preceptor, mentor, whatever. Well, it was a great discussion. So in the last two minutes, uh, as we wrap up today, I really want to talk about what the key next steps of investigation you envision are necessary to further enhance the evaluation and management of patients uh, with symptomatic BPH. And Dr. Elterman, I'm going to ask you to go first. Well, I, I think that there was a lot of discussion about what is a like a clinically meaningful outcome you know what is it important to the patient what's important to the physicians we have all these different technologies but there isn't a set standard metric to assess them and especially these are newer technologies so these new minimally invasive treatments these mists they're not medications they're not resective surgeries so what should they be compared to or should they be compared to anything and sort of stand alone so i think the future of this is understanding uh, as Lori said, I think, you know, the patient selection, the type of prostate, not just the volume, but the length, the anatomy, and which technology, which treatment fits with which prostate, and then how do we even assess those in sort of a meaningful uh, way? And that was a lot of the really excellent discussion that occurred 
at the Society of Benign Prostate Disease, the SOBPD, which I will I'll put in a plug. Everyone watching this uh, webinar or podcast should please join. Um, but that was a, a lot of the discussion was, you know, we have all of these technologies. Let's take the time to assess them uh, so that our patients get the right one. Uh, Dr. Kaplan or Dr. Lerner, anything else to add on that front? I'll just make a more holistic comment and I'll let, let Lori make the last comment. And I, and I wear this tonight on a BPA chat, but also as chair of uh, research. We have to understand who our customer is and in the industry needs to uh, do that as well. We're not the customer, it's the patient. And what we should be looking at in the future is to enhance the patient journey and to make their, not just treatment, but their post-op care and how we take care of them important. That's the unmet need, not just in BPH, not just in urology, but in medicine. We forget that's the person. And we have to listen to try to make their lives easier, their recovery easier, their, uh, their post-operative care, and frankly, how we manage them in the future. And that will be the challenge. I would say that using digital technology will help with that. So it's beyond BPH, but I think it's the opportunity as well. I think at the end of the day, you know, we just need to do the right thing, right? Like it's just that, that phrase is old as time, do the right thing. Um, and I think in BPH, we, we see people try to fit things into a BPH model and we may very well miss things like Noctoria. You know, people are not necessarily taking advantage of tools of a frequency volume chart. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have patients that are on Jardians, but Jardians leads to significant glucosuria. And we have had a huge uptick in patients with having more frequency, which, you know, that frequency may very well be related to their glucosuria. So it's, it's also coming back to the roots and saying, you know, taking that time to understand, are we treating the right disease? you know, and, and looking at their medications, which we like to say, you know, I say it all the time, I'm just a stupid surgeon, but if a patient's on a steroid taper for COPD, that may be why they're having increased urination, like taking that extra time to understand the whole picture of the patient and are we barking up the right tree and should we be sending them for a sleep study or something, you know, or, or, or altering their meds before we're just jumping into a procedure for, oh, this must be BPH. Excellent points by everyone. And I wish we could talk all night because um, I'm learning, I'm learning a lot. I know. And it's just a lot of fun to hear everyone's thoughts. But um, Doctors Lerner, Kaplan and Elterman, thank you for your time and this excellent discussion. And I'm sure the viewers will, will truly enjoy this. So have a great evening. And thank you from live from the AUA. Thank you, Amy. Great job. Thank you. Thank you.